0: Hi, and welcome to the Western Mass History Podcast. I'm Derek, and in this episode I'll be taking a look at a bizarre, short-lived cult that gained a large following around the town of Leiden during the 1790s. I hadn't previously heard of this cult, but I came across a reference to it when I was researching a completely different potential topic. I ended up on a rabbit trail, and after reading more, I decided that this would make a far more interesting episode than the topic I was originally researching. The early 19th century marked the start of the Second Great Awakening in America, and it led to significant religious changes, especially here in New England. Before this time, the Congregational Church was by far the dominant religion in Massachusetts. Descended from the Puritan churches of the 1600s, it was the official state religion well into the 19th century, and nearly every town had at least one Congregational Church. Overall there was very little religious diversity, aside from the occasional Anglicans, or Scotch-Irish Presbyterians. This began to change in the 19th century. Other Protestant denominations, such as Baptists and Methodists, started experiencing growth, and even Irish Catholics began to arrive in the region. However, the Second Great Awakening also led to the rise of more unorthodox groups. These were often founded by a charismatic leader, who claimed some sort of divine revelation or new theological discovery, and in many cases they formed utopian communes, or otherwise separated themselves from outsiders. Probably the most famous of these groups was the Mormons, but there were dozens of other groups that emerged during this time with varying degrees of success. However, long before the 19th century religious leaders like Joseph Smith, John Noyes, and William Miller, there was William Doral, who emerged in western Massachusetts in the 1790s. Declaring himself to be the Messiah, he claimed to have received a revelation from God, and he promoted the same sort of beliefs that many utopian groups would later emphasize during the Second Great Awakening, including vegetarianism, nonviolence, free love, and the ability to become morally perfect. This self-proclaimed messiah was a rather unlikely figure to lead a new religious group. Durrell was a 40-something-year-old, 300-pound, illiterate former British redcoat turned farmer in rural western Massachusetts. William Dorrell was born in Yorkshire, England in 1752. He came to America as a British soldier during the American Revolution, but he was one of the 6,000 soldiers who were taken prisoner after the Battle of Saratoga in 1777. This battle was a decisive victory for the Americans, and it is generally regarded as the turning point of the war. However, Americans at the time were ill-prepared to handle so many prisoners of war at once, and many would escape over the next few years. And, many of those who escaped would take the opportunity to start a new life in America. This was the case for William Dorrell, who likely made his escape in 1778, when the British prisoners were being held in Rutland, Massachusetts. That fall, the British were marched south to a new location in Virginia, and many chose to escape rather than make this march in the late fall and early winter. Whatever his reasons, William Dorrell did not travel south with the rest of the prisoners. Then, in the fall of 1779, he married Polly Chase in Petersham, only a few towns west of Rutland. He was 27 at the time, and she was 16, and she was the daughter of Henry and Abigail Chase of Petersham. They later moved to Warwick, but then by the early 1790s they had moved further west, to Leiden. During this time, Leiden was the western part of the town of Bernardston. It is just south of the Vermont border and to the west of the Connecticut River Valley, and in the late 1700s it was predominantly a farming community. In 1790, Leiden had a population of nearly a thousand people, which is significantly more than the town has in more recent times. When it came to churches, though, their options were limited. There was a congregational church to the east in Bernardston, or a small Baptist church in the western part of Leiden, but not much for the residents in the middle, including William Dorrell, who lived in the hills on the east side of Leiden on present-day East Hill Road. It was perhaps this isolation that helped contribute to the rise of Doral's cult. Historical records do not seem to indicate whether he consistently attended any church, but he learned the Bible from his wife, who would regularly read to him. Although illiterate, he had a great memory, and was able to memorize long passages of scripture. He was also a talented public speaker, and this, combined with his imposing physical size, meant that he could easily command the attention of an audience. The 1959 History of Leiden book identifies the site of Doral's home as having been on the north slope of Frizzle Hill. It was there, according to the book, that, while chopping wood in the forest, he supposedly heard a voice from heaven that said, render yourself a fitting sacrifice. He began preaching around 1794, and within a few years he had gained a considerable following, his followers, who came to be known as Doralites, included not only people from Leiden, but also from surrounding places like Bernardston, Colrain, and across the border in Guilford, Vermont. As an illiterate rural preacher, Doral did not leave behind letters, written sermons, theological treatises, or other documents for subsequent scholars to examine. So, one of the few surviving primary sources on his cult is an interview that was published in the Greenfield Gazette on August 20th, 1798. It was conducted by the Reverend John Taylor, pastor of the church in Deerfield. And, as a historical aside, Taylor was the grandson of the Reverend Edward Taylor of Westfield, who had been one of the most important poets in colonial America. John Taylor's published interview with Doral consisted of a series of questions and answers, interspersed with his own commentary. Taylor was very adamant about his opposition to Doral and his teachings, but he also emphasized that the interview was a fair representation of Doral. He had even read his notes back to him after the interview to ensure that he had not misunderstood anything. To a typical Protestant Christian like Taylor, Doral's beliefs would have ranged from peculiar to immoral to outright blasphemous. One of his key teachings was that it was wrong to take the life of any living creature. So not only were he and his followers vegetarians, but they also avoided using leather and similar animal products. Instead of leather shoes, they wore ones that were made out of cloth or wood and they made rope harnesses for their horses. However, they were not purely vegan, at least not in the modern sense, since they apparently did drink milk. While somewhat odd back then, the idea of eating vegetables and walking around in wooden shoes does not seem to have generated much controversy among outsiders. However, many of Doral's other teachings most certainly did. For example, he taught that there is no resurrection from the dead. He believed that Jesus did not rise from death, and that when the Bible talks about people doing so, it is referring to rising from a spiritual rather than a literal death. As Doral described it in the interview, such as are raised in this sense are perfect and are beyond the possibility of sinning. Later in the interview, Taylor asked Doral if those who are raised spiritually are obligated to follow laws. Doral responded that, "...they are free from all condemnation as they respect God, and they are free from all civil laws, from all principalities and powers." So Doral saw himself and his followers as not being subject to either the laws of religion or the laws of the government. And this extended to marriage, with Doral explaining, when a husband or wife become perfect by being raised to spiritual life, the other party is not holden by the other covenant, which is that of the civil law. And if they are both raised, still the parties are not holden to each other, and the perfect have a right to a promiscuous intercourse. In other words, once a spouse was raised from spiritual death, he or she was no longer bound by marriage vows and could have other romantic partners. Doral's opponents often seized upon this statement in their criticism of his teachings, and contemporary newspaper summaries of the interview made sure to include this salacious detail for their readers. Doral likely recognized that he may have said more than he should have, because later in the interview he tried to backtrack. Taylor explained in his commentary in the interview, At the close of my inquiries, I again turned to the subject of marriage. He appeared to be embarrassed, sometimes denying the doctrine of promiscuous intercourse, and sometimes explaining it in such a manner as that he could not be clearly understood. It is undoubtedly a fact that his true sentiments on this subject are here properly exposed, for at the time he answered these questions respecting marriage, he was under no embarrassment, and the reason which he here gave for the support of the doctrine, viz., that all members of Christ's body are one body, is sufficient evidence that his after-denial and embarrassment arose from some fears he entertained, that he should expose himself to the law. After the question about marriage, Taylor asked about how his followers worship. Doral responded with, We have no meetings for worship. All days are alike. One day is as holy as another day. Taylor followed up by asking him, But you, probably, sometimes meet. What is your business when together? Doral was rather vague and seemingly evasive in his response, merely stating, We talk about our business, and anything just as it happens. However, in his own commentary, Taylor added, I would here observe that I learnt from others who had attended some of their meetings that they were guilty of conduct beastly in the highest degree. One told me that he saw Doral with his wife and a young woman of a respectable family rolling together upon the floor in one of their meetings. They sing songs, the most vile and filthy that were ever written by Bacchanalians. One verse of their songs I have obtained. It is so vile and filthy that if such a thing were possible, it would defile even a brothel. Another account of these meetings, published in 1824 in the Gazetteer of Vermont, describes how, Meetings were held once a week at which their worship consisted in eating, drinking, singing, fiddling and dancing, and hearing lectures from Doral. Who was well qualified for that purpose. Aside from these practices, Doral's teachings included many beliefs that Taylor and other Christians would have regarded as blasphemous. For example, Doral explained in the interview how he believed that God and the devil were equal. God ruled over light and the devil over darkness, and they had equal power in their realms. He also denied the doctrine of God's omniscience. He told Taylor that, God has no forethought, no knowledge of what passes in the dark world, which is hell and has no knowledge of what has taken place, nor of what will take place in the world. Regarding people, Doro believed that, as he put it, neither God or the devil has any power over man to control him. He believed that he was perfect, declaring, I am perfect, my body is in perfect obedience to the Spirit, I am swallowed up in the power, that is, God. I cannot violate my conscience, if I violate the laws of the Bible, I have no sin from that consideration. Taylor then asked him if his followers were perfect. Doral rather confusingly explained, None can be perfect but the head. I am the head, and none can be perfect as long as I remain. There are two kinds of perfection, the perfection of the head and the perfection of the members. My followers are as perfect compared with me as the members of a body are compared with the head. When asked if he considers himself to be the head of a new covenant, Doral told Taylor, All the covenants which God has heretofore entered into with man are at an end, and a new covenant is made with me, and I have all power to direct in matters of this covenant. Taylor then asked him how one would become a part of this covenant, and Doral told him, I am the object through whom you must look for all the blessings of the covenant. You must be presented to God by and through me, as obedient to my words, which are from God and not from man. When asked more follow-up questions, Doral went so far as to declare himself equal to Jesus. He explained, I stand the same as Jesus Christ in all respects. My disciples stand in the same relation to me as the disciples of Christ did to him. In his last question, Taylor asked him if, then, Doral is to be worshipped as Jesus. Doral replied, I would not have any person worship my human body. I am to be worshipped in the same manner as Jesus Christ was to be worshipped i.e. as God united to human flesh. Towards the end of the article, Taylor provided more of his own commentary, including his reasons for conducting and publishing the interview. A number of his followers, I understand, have heretofore sustained good characters, and were valuable men in society. How such could have been deluded by a man so ignorant, so inconsistent, and so impious and immoral, is inconceivable. It is probable, however, that till now they never had obtained a proper idea of his sentiments. His manner of communicating his notions is such, from his ignorance of language and his confusion of ideas, that I found it extremely difficult to obtain any proper knowledge of the objects he seemed to be after. I was not certain I had penned any sentiment right till he affirmed it to be agreeable to his mind, after having heard it read." So, essentially, Taylor hoped that, by publishing the interview, it would force Doral to put himself on the record as to exactly what he believed, which would then hopefully reveal his many errors to his followers. Summaries of the interview were widely published in newspapers around the country, with headlines such as Imposter, Fanaticism, and Impious Depravity. However, it seems unclear whether this had any effect on his following, because his cult continued to flourish for the next few years. Early on, the cult was centered around East Hill Road, near the northeastern corner of Leiden, but later on it shifted down the hill to Beaver Meadow, about a mile south of the Vermont border. Most of the families involved in the cult were from the vicinity of these places, and by its peak, the Doralites included about 20 or 30 families, as estimated in the 1902 History of Bernardston book. The book goes on to name some of the known Doralites, including Hezekiah Newcomb, Samuel and John Connable. Ezra Shattuck, Charles Packer, Messrs. Dewey and Eddie, Zenas, Reuben, and Michael Frizzle, Captain Parmenter, Joshua Wells, Abner Evans, Mr. Paid, Amos Burroughs, Reuben Sheldon, James and Pitts Phillips, Charles Stearns, David Potter, Jedediah Fuller, and John Dixon. This list includes a number of prominent early Leiden residents. Hezekiah Newcomb, Ezra Shattuck, and Charles Packer were regularly elected as town selectmen during this period and Newcomb would hold the office on and off for a number of years, until as late as 1834. He would also represent the town and the state legislature in the early 19th century. However, perhaps the most notable of Dorrell's followers was Jason Parmenter. A veteran of the American Revolution, Parmenter had fought at Saratoga, ironically on the opposite side of his future spiritual leader, William Dorrell. Then, after the war, he emerged as a leader in what would become known as Shays' Rebellion, The rebellion collapsed in 1787 after a failed attempt to seize the arsenal in Springfield, and Parmenter fled to Vermont to avoid arrest. However, he returned to Bernardston at one point to retrieve some of his belongings. In the process, he encountered a group of militiamen who were seeking to arrest him. They exchanged gunfire, and one of the militiamen was killed in the process. Parmenter was later arrested and was sentenced to death. He and another convicted rebel were then marched to the gallows in Northampton, and two minutes before they were to be hanged, they were granted a reprieve. His sentence was postponed several more times, before he was eventually pardoned when a new governor, John Hancock, took office. After his release, Parmenter ended up in Leiden, where he came to be involved with William Dorrell. It's hard to say what drew him into the cult, but perhaps the nonviolence aspect appealed to him, after having gone through the violence of the American Revolution and Shays' Rebellion, killing a man who tried to arrest him, and coming within two minutes of his own execution. Like with Parmenter, it's hard to say exactly why Doral's other followers joined him. Was it his charismatic personality? Was it a desire for a sense of belonging and community in the remote frontier? Were they motivated by the idea of not having to follow religious or civil laws? Or did they simply enjoy having a good time at the meetings? For a few, it's possible that they may have been motivated, at least in part, by money. For example, Ezra Shattuck made the wooden shoes that the Doralites wore. Did he make these out of a sense of religious devotion, or was it a way for him to make a profit? Then there was Amos Burroughs, a blacksmith. The History of Bernardston book relates that, according to tradition, he had leather bellows that he covered in painted cloth, giving the appearance that he was following Doral's teachings about not using animal products. Whether this meant he was insincere in his beliefs is hard to say. But he may have had other reasons for being involved with the Doral. While it does not mention Burroughs by name, the Gazetteer of Vermont explains how the Doralites had a covenant by which they placed a large share of their property in common stock, and the blacksmith became their treasurer. Historian Francis M. Thompson, writing in 1882 for the Pocumtuck Valley Memorial Association, further elaborates on this, while likewise avoiding naming Burroughs. The sect had a common treasury, and the office was filled by a shrewd businessman. And it is a common report that the Doralite treasure was the foundation of the fortune of one of the wealthiest and most influential families in this portion of the county. But whether there is more truth in the story than the fact that the founder of one of our most highly respected families was the treasurer of the sect, I know not. Probably the most prominent of Amos Burrows's descendants was his grandson, George Hunt Burroughs, a railroad official who eventually became superintendent of the Western Division of the New York Central. On the surface, his story definitely seems like that of a self-made man fulfilling the American dream. Grandson of a blacksmith, who rises up from his humble origins to become a friend and business associate of the Vanderbilts. But it's interesting to speculate whether his grandfather's possible embezzlement of Doralite funds may have had something to do with his family's later prosperity. Aside from explaining this rumor about the Doralite treasurer, Francis M. Thompson's historical account of the Doralites also includes an anecdote that was shared by the son of one of Doral's followers. He writes, Dr. Samuel Stearns, late of Greenfield, used to tell of his mother's trials caused by his father's adherence to the Doralite doctrine. He was charmed with the meetings of the sect, and after much persuasion induced his wife to attend one, that she might enjoy the good times, as he called them. So, mounting the family horse, she riding the pillion, they went to the place of meeting at Beaver Meadows, where the horse was securely fastened in a grove nearby, and soon after entering the house the exercises commenced. But she soon discovered that her own and her husband's idea of what constituted a good time were totally different, and flying to the grove she unloosed the horse, and mounting into the saddle she rode home, leaving her infatuated lord to return as best he could but she at last won back her husband from his idols by using a little stratagem. As the faithful could not eat flesh, neither could they, except in the most necessary cases, work their cattle. So Mr. Stearns, as was the custom of the sect, was engaged in spading up a piece of land for seeding. He worked hard and sorely felt the need of a more invigorating diet than his dry bread, mush, and milk and vegetable food afforded his faithful wife, tempted him each day by good savory meat dinners, which were partaken of by the remainder of the family, but still he held out. One day, becoming thoroughly disgusted with the foolishness of her husband, she, with the help of the boys, yoked up the cattle, and taking hold of the plow, went through and through the field where he was at work, until he exclaimed, I believe this devilish religion will kill me if I don't quit, and threw down his shovel, rushed into the house, and laid into the cold victuals like a half-starved trooper, forswearing his religion forever. Another story about the Doralites, which was included as an end note to Thompson's article, came from a letter written by the grandchild of Dr. Benjamin Morgan, who had been the Doral family physician. According to the letter writer, the followers of Doral, both men and women, were to walk naked from Leyden to Greenfield. The day was set, but in that little hilly town were men who said this thing had gone far enough. And when my grandfather came home from a meeting of some of the citizens, grandmother with a pale face and trembling voice said, Doctor, are they going? His reply was, Mother, don't be frightened. I know of twenty men with as many rawhides, and if the Doralites attempt anything of the kind, there will be no mercy shown them. The Doralites took the alarm and disbanded. Since these two stories were published nearly a century after they happened, it is hard to say exactly how much is accurate. However, Samuel Stearns, the source of the first story, was born in 1791, and so he would have been old enough to remember his father's involvement in the Doralites and his mother's attempt to get him to leave the cult. And regarding the second story, there are earlier accounts of Doral proposing such a journey to Greenfield, although no mention of whether it was the threat of whipping that dissuaded his followers. One other story about the Doralites is recounted in the Gazetteer of Vermont. Published in 1824 during the lifetime of Doral and many of his followers, it tells the story of the downfall of the cult, which occurred at a meeting around 1800. At that meeting, one Captain Ezekiel Foster of Leiden attended as a spectator. He was a man of good sense, of a giant frame, and had a countenance that bespoke authority. When Doral came to the doctrine of his mysterious powers— he had no sooner uttered the words, No arm can hurt my flesh, than Foster rose indignantly at this blasphemy, and knocked down Doral with a fist. Doral, affrighted and almost senseless, attempted to rise, when he received a second blow, at which he cried for mercy. Foster promised to forbear, on condition that he would renounce his doctrines, yet continued beating him. Soon a short parley ensued, when Doral consented and did renounce his doctrines in the hearing of all his astonished followers, he further told them that his object was to see what fools he could make of mankind. His followers, chagrined and ashamed at being made the dupes of such a base fellow, departed in peace to their homes. Doral promised his adversary upon the penalties of his life never to impose upon the people more. The gazetteer went on to assure readers of the credibility of this account, explaining. The author had this relation from said Foster and many other respectable witnesses. Should anyone doubt it, the reader may rest assured that one half is not told of the base imposition of Doral. This climactic event essentially marked the end of the Doralite cult. But, while Foster had threatened his life if he continued teaching, Doral apparently tried to revive his following. The History of Leiden book recounts one incident where Doral tried to prove his messianic claims by walking on water. He secretly placed planks just below the surface of the water, but someone removed them before he started his walk, which caused him to simply splash into the water. The book also tells of an attempt to kill Foster, although this scheme did not work out. So, William Doral entered a long and quiet retirement from the public spotlight. He remained in Leiden for the rest of his life, Where he went from having been the town's would be messiah to becoming the town drunk. The Gazetteer of Vermont described him as being a miserable, drunken pauper maintained by the town of Leiden. In 1834, future Lieutenant Governor Henry W. Cushman, a Bernardston native, visited the elderly Doral. Cushman later described, in an article published after Doral's death in 1846, how he lived. In a poor old house, in a cold, bleak place, far from any neighbor's or a traveled road. He went on to describe how, It is now near fifty years since his followers left him, and his schemes, if he had any, vanished like the early dew. During that time he has lived in obscurity and poverty, but he never became a believer in Christianity, nor did he ever give up, entirely, the idea that revelations were made to him from a superior power. Durrell remained in good health throughout his life, which perhaps only added to his sense that he had some sort of divine attributes. He eventually died in August 1846 at the age of 94, at the home of his son-in-law, Rufus Shattuck, in Leiden. Cushman described how, finally, having become weary of life, he literally starved himself to death. For four weeks before his death, he took no nourishment whatever except cold water, seemingly determined to shuffle off this mortal coil and end an existence that had become destitute of comfort or satisfaction. Cushman then closed his article by reflecting upon how, given a better education, Doral may have become an influential philosopher, and he closed by stating, He had some good qualities. Who has not? Let the good that he did be remembered, but let the evil be interred with his bones. This was perhaps the kindest remark that any of Doral's contemporaries ever published about him, and it reveals a much more nuanced approach to his character than most of the other accounts of the period, which tend to harshly vilify him. Doral was buried in Beaver Meadow Cemetery, on a hill overlooking the area where he had once presided over the Bacchanalian revelries of his followers. He was buried alongside his wife Polly, who had died in 1837, and their graves are now marked by small marble headstones, which were likely not installed until later in the 19th century. William Dorrell's gravestone has Grandfather carved on the top, and the inscription on the stone simply reads, William Dorrell, a soldier of 1776, died August 28, 1846, age 94 years. This is a rather curious inscription, since, while it is true that he was a veteran of the American Revolution, it implies that he had fought on the American rather than on the British side. Perhaps his descendants were unaware that he had been a redcoat, or perhaps they wanted to remember him as a soldier rather than as a cult leader. Overall, William Dorrell is hardly remembered at all today, and he certainly did not spark any long-lasting religious movement, notwithstanding his claim to having been his generation's messiah. However, it is interesting to speculate about what indirect effect he may have had on later religious groups, especially those that, like Dorrell, challenged traditional beliefs and claimed special divine revelation. The History of Leiden book claims, albeit without giving any sources or specific details, that some credit Doral as influencing Mormonism, which began in New York in the 1820s. This is a difficult claim to prove, and there are certainly many differences between the Doralites and the Mormons, including very different attitudes towards alcohol. The early Mormons did practice polygamy, although this is very different from the free love ideas that Doral taught. But it is interesting to note that in 1801, just a year after Doral's ministry collapsed, future Mormon leader Brigham Young was born in Whitingham, Vermont, only about 12 miles to the northeast of Leiden. The Young family does not seem to have had any connection to the Doralites, and they moved to New York only a few years later, so this is probably just a geographic coincidence. But Brigham Young is not the only influential religious leader who was born in the vicinity of Leiden during this time. In 1811, John Humphrey Noyes was born about 10 miles north of Leiden, in Brattleboro, Vermont. He attended Yale and studied theology, and came to the conclusion that Jesus had already returned a second time in 70 AD, and that it was therefore possible for Christians to become perfect without sin. This led him to formulate beliefs that were remarkably similar to what Dorrell had taught several decades earlier. For example, Noyes believed that, once people had become perfect, They were no longer bound by traditional morals or by civil law. And, as was the case with Doral, this included marriage. Noyes promoted the concept of complex marriage among his followers, which seems to be very similar to the promiscuous intercourse that Dorrell had taught. Noyes began his ministry in Putnam, Vermont, just a little north of Brattleboro, but he later relocated to Oneida, New York. There, he and his followers established the Oneida community, a utopian commune that grew to over 300 members, before eventually dissolving in the late 1800s. As with the Mormons, it's impossible to say whether Doral had any influence on noise. But, in the case of noise, I would have to say it's at least plausible, given the geographic proximity and the similarity of many of their beliefs. In the meantime, back in Leiden, the present-day view of Beaver Meadow from Doral's grave site is probably not all that different from the scene that he would have known. Over the years Leiden has remained a small rural town, smaller in fact than it had been in Dorrell's heyday. like Dorrell's cult, Leiden's overall population had peaked in 1800 with just over a thousand residents. however this number steadily declined over the years, dropping to 646 by the 1840 census and eventually falling as low as 260 in 1940 this was typical for the rural hill towns of western Massachusetts which tended to experience rapid population growth after the end of the American Revolution, only to turn into virtual ghost towns, as residents abandoned the hilly, rocky soil for more fertile farmland in the west, or for greater opportunities in the growing industrial cities here in the Northeast. Today, Leiden has a number of historic homes, some of which probably date back to Dorrell's time period. However, it seems unclear whether any of Dorrell's houses are still standing. Property ownership can be difficult to trace over time, especially in rural communities where street numbers were not standardized until well into the 20th century. Historical property descriptions often make reference to long-gone landmarks, or to long-dead adjacent property owners. For example, Doral purchased 20 acres in 1798, and the deed described the land as, "...beginning at the southwest corner at a pile of stones on a ledge." This can even be an issue in more modern local history books. For example, the 1959 History of Leiden book speculates that one of Dorrell's houses may have been moved and incorporated into what the book describes as the east wing of the John Glayback house. This is a rather unhelpful description to anyone who doesn't happen to know where John Glayback was living in 1959, but it appears to have been somewhere on East Hill Road, probably towards the northern end of the road. Whether that house or its east wing is still standing is hard to say. Aside from these houses, other remnants from these early settlers of Leiden include their cemeteries, which are scattered around the town. Some of Doral's former followers, including Ezra Shattuck, are buried with him at Beaver Meadow, but others are buried in East Hill Cemetery, including Hezekiah Newcomb and members of the Frizzle family. Just a little to the north of that cemetery, East Hill Road runs along an open field with expansive views to the northeast. From here, the rolling hills of northern Massachusetts and southern New Hampshire are visible, and on a clear day, Mount Monadnock rises in the distance above the landscape from nearly 30 miles away. It was somewhere around here that William Dorrell and his family settled in the late 1700s, and it would have been somewhere near here that he would have supposedly heard his revelation while chopping wood. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Western Mass History. For more information, including photos of some of the scenes in Leiden, check out our social media pages. You can follow Western Mass History on facebook.com Mass westernmasshistory and on Instagram at westernmasshistory. And feel free to reach out if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes. If you like this episode, you can also subscribe to future ones. Western Mass History is available on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Thanks for listening.